you can avoid these landmines. It's a buy versus build conversation. conversation. What's the root cause of that mistake? Very moved by your story. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Welcome to The Boutique with Collective 54, a podcast for founders and leaders of boutique professional services firms. Our goal with this show is to help you grow, scale, and exit your firm bigger and faster. I'm Sean McGinnis, Collective 54 Advisory Board Member and your host. On this episode, I will make the case that boutiques constrain their growth by thinking too narrowly about monetization. They often think there is only one way to charge and only a couple of revenue sources available to them. When in fact, there are nine common ways and probably more to make money in the professional services industry. I'll try to prove this theory by interviewing Jamie Shanks, CEO at Sales for Life. Sales for Life enables sales organizations and teams to produce sales-generated pipeline at scale. To accomplish this, they have evolved into a tech-enabled service with a product called the Scale Pipeline System. This system helps customers grow their sales pipeline by 25% within 90 days. And you can find Jamie and his team on salesforlife, all one word, dot com. Jamie, great to see you. Welcome. Sean, thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I've been so looking forward to chatting with you. I love your energy and I love what you're doing. So let's start with an overview. Can you briefly share with the audience an example of how you've developed a new revenue stream? Yeah, actually, we not only generated a new revenue stream, but spun it out as a secondary company called Pipeline Signals. Essentially, we had or have a training business for the last eight years that has various sources of revenue streams. What was happening upon finalizing certification with our customers, we needed a reinforcement mechanism and we created a managed service that actually mined signal intelligence on behalf of sellers and created that revenue stream as a spin out from Sales for Life. I love that. You know, it, it sounds easy and I'm sure, you know, it wasn't as easy as you make it sound, but having that knowledge that you needed a reinforcement, turning that into a managed service, what a great example. So Jamie, what I'd like to do is get your thoughts on some of the best practices that we recommend in this area. We've identified nine of the most used sources of revenue in professional services. I'll walk you through each one and then get your brief thoughts on each as we've got quite a bit to get through. So the first one is hourly billings. Charging clients an hourly rate has the benefit of being easy to implement. However, it limits how much revenue you can generate. There's a fixed number of hours. There's an upper limit of how much you can charge for each hour. What are your thoughts on this concept? And all the context I provide, I'm going to talk from a training perspective and a managed service. Great. I completely avoid the hourly billing because I only have whatever is 1,600 or 2,000 hours in a year. Yes. And I'm trying to create leverage per those hours and trading time and materials. My, my personal opinion, I avoid it at all costs. That's, Jamie, in your context, excellent. Number two is a retainer. This is when a client pays you upfront to secure your services when needed. 
This has the benefit of getting paid in advance and of a predictable cash flow. However, there are only so many retainers a boutique can handle at one time. What is your opinion about this concept? Uh, we had that separated. We actually had a retainer program where we have what's called a daily coaching hotline. And it granted our customers unlimited access to coming into, think of like professor class time at university. Yes. Challenge is then what again, it became a utilization rate exercise of constantly trying to figure out what is the percentage chance that people will drop into that call? Mm. Will we be spreading ourselves too thin? We then had to break out. Do some people get individualized call times versus uh, a public enrollment of allowing multiple people on the same call? So we eventually migrated that revenue stream into more of a fixed fee bid and annualized subscription. So we no longer touch uh, the retainer model. Okay, excellent, because the next question is fixed bid. So this is using a flat amount regardless of the amount of hours worked. It is profitable work for boutiques if they can scope projects correctly. So if a firm struggles with estimating the level of effort, it can be a money loser. So what do you think about this? How's, how have you dealt with that? This is essentially our go-to-market. Uh, over time, we've discovered our gross margins. Our gross margins are north of 80%. And so by understanding that and also developing a service that is scalable, tech-enabled services you described up front, it allows for predictable delivery. Our delivery really doesn't change customer to customer uh, outside of a few hours here, a few hours there over the course of a year. Yes. So all of our customers uh, for Sales for Life in particular are on annualized subscription contracts that are fixed fee bid. And it is up to us to live within the means of the uh, people and process that we're deploying against that. Brilliant. And, and staying disciplined and not going out of scope, right? Correct. Fantastic. Correct. And, and going out of scope, I think the important piece here is uh, not customizing. I mean, this is lessons learned. Don't play the game of let's throw everything into this, the uh, deliverables and outcomes section of your statement of work. Yes. Design something that is a repeatable service. The one-offs, um, you will get clobbered because there will be scope creep that happens every time. Absolutely. So well said. The fourth one is performance-based contracts. So this is where goals are established. And if the firm is successful, they get paid. And if they fail to deliver, they don't get paid. It does allow a boutique to capture upside as they're usually uncapped. The risk, of course, is if you don't produce, you lose your shirt. So what are your thoughts on performance-based contracts? This is actually something we want to experiment in the future with a company that we have an idea of launching. But at Sales for Life, we have not had the retained earnings or the, the risk profile yeah. willingness to take on those type of customers. Now, I'll give some caveat that the customers at Sales for Life are global enterprise, global mid-market. They may not be as apt to... Um, to running a model like that, because right. for them, they're pulling money out of OPEX, it's predictable, it's being sold to a director or a VP of a business unit or a line. So we haven't done it. Okay. I have interviewed and met many CEOs that are experimenting or are doing it successfully. 
and it actually has been the growth driver for their business, I unfortunately have not tried it out of fear, really. No, and, and that's important to recognize. And it's important to have the means to carry that risk um, from a cash flow or from a cash reserve standpoint. The fifth one is member dues. And it's a business we know well, and it's a business you're getting to know well. So this is when a client pays the boutique if they see a value in being in a group or community with other clients. The annual dues grant access to people of you know a similar nature and similar jobs dealing with similar issues. It's profitable for do, uh, boutiques as it scales nicely. Small amounts of staff can manage large numbers of clients. The risk, however, is you have if you have unhappy clients, the word is going to spread quickly. So what are your thoughts on member dues? This is essentially a form of what sales training companies do. Um, yes, they originate typically in project-based one-time revenue, but our business after eight years, it is a form of a member due. Essentially, it's an annualized subscription. Uh, it began where there was quarterly deposits up front. Then we became comfortable in asking for annualized membership dues. That's essentially what it is. And yes. then now with three and five-year contracts, but essentially what they're getting is a series of deliverables throughout the year. And it's this is what I like about it. It's value-based outcomes. So all that you're basically saying to people is over the course of X, let's call that one year, Yes, I'm going to move you from ground, ground floor to Mars. And on that journey, don't come to me every month about where we are on our way to the space shuttle uh, and then on the way to the moon and the way onto the Mars. Let's focus on what we're trying to accomplish over a year and uh, keep paying your bills. So yeah. uh, we are a form of a member service and it's the best way, especially again, if you understand your gross margins. I love that example. Well, well, well said. The sixth is licensing revenue. It's, a, it's an area I know well. I was in a licensing revenue business for 14 years. This is where a licensing fee is paid by a client to a boutique for the use of intellectual property. Many boutiques have methodologies and tools a client want unlimited access to. They pay a license fee or a royalty for this right. And the risk to a boutique with this is an inability to productize their service offering. So if every pro project is a snowflake, it doesn't work. So what are your thoughts on this concept? Yes, and so that's what makes up our annualized subscription. And I'll talk about what we'd like to do in the future with a channel model. But essentially, if you were to reverse engineer, our average sales price annualized sits between 80 and 100,000 US dollars per customer. If you were to break that down, a percentage of that from an accounting perspective is accounted as an annualized license mm -hmm. that is then deployed in one twelfth across a year when you use yep. accrual accounting. Yep. And then there's a service that's also applied to that as well. And what we try to do is make the annualized license worth 70 to 80% of the total fee. And then the services worth one 20 top. to 30. The licenses has more enterprise value than the services themselves. The services again, have been productized. The onboarding process, is the same for every customer. Right. The deployment of the learning is the same for every customer. The quarterly business reviews with the customer are the same. So in essence, um, they're all like that from a license. The customer sees one licensing price. Some will ask for that breakdown because they need to account 
for what percentage is a license. Now, where we want to bring this in the future is being able to develop a channel ecosystem. And that channel mm -hmm. ecosystem, our customer then does not become the end user. The customer of ours becomes the channel partner. They pay a licensing fee and then they resell it to their customers. To the end user. And, and it'll come to one of your other models. It's a form of a royalty as it's well. A, right. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you've keyed in on something I think our listeners need to know that's really important. When you're looking at licensing revenue, the documentation, the playbooks, making it very, very standard that you can replicate is really critical for the success of this model. Yes. Yeah. If you, if you look at like a training business, we would straddle the line between a so it's, it has the it should have the margins of a software company, mm. um, but the human element of services. I wish it had SaaS software multiples. It does not, <laughs> but it has. It's very akin to it, where you create the intellectual property and the IP one time. You put it in a learning management system and you sell it a thousand times. Yes, to a thousand companies. Yeah. Oh, very nice. The seventh one is subscription. And these are all sort of, you know, um, aligned in some way. So subscription is paid to a boutique by a client to gain access to an asset. For example, many boutiques have proprietary benchmark data and clients who want access to this data pay a subscription. The risk is managing the asset, keeping the quality of the data well. So, you know, if the data ages, it becomes worthless. Clients, you know disappear. What are your thoughts on the subscription model for revenue generation? It's basically all of our revenue. And we. it took us a while to have the strength and the tenacity to ask for the annualized subscription fee paid in advance of the calendar year that it's going to be deployed. Yes. And uh, we try, unless it's the Microsofts of the world, that is always the case. Collect the money up front, yeah, and uh, from from that moment, uh, work within that that gross margins itself. And we really worked hard to ensure that DSO or day sales outstanding, mm -hmm. sits, if possible, under thirty days. That uh, we're not experts at it, but that means that you are taking a year and of revenue and deploying it in the same month of an operating expense of one particular month. It, it, it's an incredible way to accelerate the growth of your business if you can sell 12 of those over the course of a year. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Well, well structured and a great example. Number eight is events. Um, in this current environment, this may not be a particularly good uh, revenue generator, but this is where clients buy a ticket or tickets to be granted admission to an event uh, or a seminar or a three-day that boutiques put on. It can be very profitable, and typically you can get sponsors to cover the cost of the event, and the ticket sales then are all profit. The risk, of course, is that if no one buys tickets and no one shows up, then it's a bust. What are your thoughts on the event concept? I have a couple examples on the event. So as part of my, you know, my business, a quarter million dollars of revenue for five years before, up until COVID was speaking engagements and mm. workshops. So this kind of also comes to your first question, yes. which was around hourly. When I began speaking on stage, I made many mistakes. And mm -hmm. that was thinking 
that the hour that I was on the stage should be charged for that particular hour, only to come to realize that when your car leaves the driveway to get to the airport, live in Dubai for two days and then come home, you need to equate for this. And then you also need to equate for the value creation, not the hours spent, because you also spend a lot of time building the presentation and so forth. So my speaking fees went from $500 to $1,000, incorrect, thinking Mm -hmm. of like the hour of that deployment, to um, on average between $20,000 and $40,000, depending on where I was going to go. COVID changed that. When COVID happened, the world tried to revert all of us speakers to ensure that our Zoom calls were a cost per hour and that our Microsoft team calls were a cost per hour. So what happened is those who, that was 10% of our revenue. Mm. And now you can deduce the size of sales for life. If you look at that, um, those that had speaking and workshops as like 80% of the revenue, it just, it crippled them Crushed because them. the customer was saying, well, I'll pay you $500 to do the same thing virtually. Like, yeah. No, 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 no. Again, you tried to drive it back to the value creation piece. Now you could obviously discount saying, well, I'm not going to spend two days in Dubai out of market, out of pocket. So, you know, the speaking and fees on virtual have typically landed for, in my world, for Three to five, three to five to maybe ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Maybe that kind of helps answer the first part, which is how do events change and you get away from that hourly. Yes. We also then ran our own conference. We put together a conference six years ago. Cost us a quarter million dollars to put this thing all together. And one of the things that I've learned is that the gate fees or the mm. the Ticket selling fees. Tickets, ticket fees yep. of three hundred, four, or $500 is not the way to make money, no. nor is even the sponsors. The best practice from my understanding, mm-hmm. my limited experience, my wife's in that industry, has been that the people that you bring in, um, the future equated revenue of those people measured over the next one to three years should be your return on investment mm-hmm. thinking. And that the gate fee and or the ticket fee and the sponsorship fee will hopefully bring you to a break break even. Yes, you did your cost of customer acquisition. Hopefully, became zero unless you equate the time and energy it took to build the conference itself. So, and that's brilliant. I love that thinking, and that means that your strategy for events has to be extraordinarily well conceived, very well thought through. Because if you're reliant then on those individuals, either as prospects or as a land and expand, if you have them as existing clients, is this an opportunity to upsell or cross-sell? There needs to be a very specific engagement strategy from what I'm hearing from you to unlock the value long-term from the investment in events. Correct. And I think uh, the events world is now permanently disrupted. Yes. And if you are trying to put on a $100,000 event, let's use around numbers, try to recouping $100,000 in gate ticket fees and sponsors might be a tall ask. Now you have to deploy a sales team to even get those that level of people in the door. Correct. Think about it. Think about it from the perspective of if we can at least break even, what would 
five of those hundred people who became customers, what would that mean to our business? Yep. What is the you know, lifetime value of five new accounts? Absolutely. Now, now it's probably the best way to look at it. I love it. That That is so clear. And thank you for being so candid in that one, because a lot of people are thinking, do I go back to events? Is it going to be a hybrid model? And how can we truly extract an ROI from it? The final one is royalties. So this is when a boutique does not monetize the client, but instead they monetize other boutiques. It's often used by boutiques of training products like you in your bag. They allow other firms to use their training material. They collect a royalty every time they do. The risk with this is that somebody steals your IP, you know, and, and dresses it up and creates their own. So a boutique who chooses this strategy really needs to understand paywalls, royalty agreements and IP protection. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if you look at my industry, those that have scaled, and I've had this conversation with Greg many times, and he's <laughs> made it very clear. If you look at the few great global sales training companies, they have one thing in common. They've built a channel ecosystem. Yeah. Sandler, in my industry, decided to do it through a franchising model. Mm -hmm. Most do it through a 1099 contractor channel model. But it is this the singular commonality to scaling intellectual property is that in my industry, typically the OEM, the designer of the which is you, uh, IP, which is me, would take on average 30 to 40 percent of the deal and the boutique that actually sells wins and then delivers the service takes somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent range. Mm -hmm. And that's a common model. We experimented with it and I learned the lesson of trying to become half pregnant. We got halfway there, had a few hits and misses. It will be a focus of ours over the next five to 10 years. And it is the obvious path to scale that we will focus on. Great. Thank you for that, Jamie. So there you have it. Nine ways to monetize professional services, some amazing insights and really practical real-time uh, examples from Jamie. So going to market with a single revenue source, in our view, is a mistake. The important lesson here is to have multiple revenue sources. Therefore, the question our listeners should be asking themselves is, what is the right mix for you? If you have one, try to get two. If you have two, try to get three, and so on. The opportunity is often right under the nose of an owner. You just need to know where to look. Okay, this takes us to the end of the episode. Let's try to help listeners apply this. We end each show with a tool. There's going to be a simple 10-question checklist and a yes-no answer to it. We keep it very simple. So, Jamie... I'm going to ask you these questions and just simply say yes or no, and I'll run through them quickly. The first one is, will the client pay you more than $500 an hour? Yes. Will a client pay you in advance to secure your services on demand? Yes. Number three, can you scope your projects with precision? Yes. Number four, can you prove direct attribution of results in your project? Yes, I'm in sales. We're quite easy, actually. Number five, will your clients pay you for the privilege of speaking to your other clients? 
Never tried. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, will your clients pay you for the right to use your intellectual property? Yes. Number seven, do you have proprietary data that clients would like to subscribe to? Yes. Number eight, do you put on events and are clients willing to buy tickets to attend? Had in the past. Number nine, are other boutiques willing to pay you a royalty to distribute your intellectual property? Hopefully my future. And number 10, does your business model include at least three sources of revenue? Yes. Jamie, fantastic. So in summary, there are many different sources of revenue available to boutiques. Develop a clever monetization strategy. Think about a mix of revenue, not just one source. Jamie, a huge thank you for your expertise today, and I look forward to seeing you again and for our listeners. If you enjoyed this show and want to learn more, pick up a copy of the book, The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Professional Services Firm, written by Collective 54 founder Greg Alexander. And for more expert support, check out Collective 54, the first expert community for founders and leaders of boutique professional services firms. Collective 54 will help you grow, scale, and exit your firm bigger and faster. Go to collective54.com to learn more. Thank you for listening.